0: Good morning, Grace. It's great to be with you together on this Sunday morning. Let's jump right into uh, our passage. The way Luke arranges his material in Luke chapter 8 has the story of Jesus calming the sea just before Jesus delivers this man from demons. Jesus, as Luke presents him, is master over the forces of nature, and he's master over demonic spirits. On the sea, Jesus calms a literal storm. On the seashore, he calms the storm of a man's life. You've all seen those dramatic before and after pictures. Incredible weight loss. Someone's holding up the jeans that used to fit them. Now they're four times too big. Or you see the, the guy who's just full of muscles. And 10 weeks ago, he was a 98-pound weakling. But now, this guy who could barely open a heavy car door can bench press your car. It's incredible, the transformation. And most of us are familiar with Extreme Home Makeover. The host, Ty, and his crew will come into a home, and in a matter of days, what was falling apart is absolutely fabulous. These before and after pictures are pretty amazing. The change is so dramatic. You can hardly believe what you're seeing, who you're seeing is the same person, the same home as what you saw before. Well, as dramatic as some of those before and after pictures are, they're nothing compared to the before and after of this demon-possessed man. To help us work through this miraculous story, there's an outline you can follow along. It's in the home worship guide, or you can just jot it down this morning if you have a piece of paper and a pencil. It's, It's really brief. We have the setting, the situation, the response, and then I have a parting question. For each of us. We'll start with the setting. In verse 26, Jesus and his disciples, after a dangerous journey, arrive in the country of the Gerasenes. This is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Some translations say uh, this place is called the Gadarenes, other the Gergesenes, whatever the name, Luke's big point is what he says in the last part of verse 26, that this city was opposite Galilee, we might say, on the wrong side of the tracks. It's Gentile territory. And we're confident of this for uh, some good reasons. Uh, To start, there's a theme of uncleanness that runs throughout the description. The demon is called an unclean spirit. The demon-possessed man lives in what's considered an unclean location among the tombs. We also can't miss this. There's a herd of pigs in the story. Pigs were considered unclean animals among the Jews and and they certainly wouldn't be found in a Jewish village. Another reason we think this is a Gentile region is after Jesus delivers the man from demons, uh, we'll read this in a moment, he tells him, go and tell others how much God has done for you. Now, typically in the gospels, when Jesus does something miraculous, he tells people to keep silent. You ever notice that? Mark chapter seven, after Jesus heals a man who was deaf and mute, he says to those present, tell no one. Mark chapter eight, after Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ, we read, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Mark chapter nine, after Peter, James, and John got to see the glory of Christ revealed, a glimpse of it on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're coming down the mountain, and Jesus charged them, tell no one what they saw until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And that seems odd at first glance, doesn't it? I mean, don't we want to spread the gospel? Don't we want to tell the mighty works of Jesus to everyone who will listen? Why the gag order? What's probably going on is that when Jesus is in Jewish regions, Which is most of his ministry, he knows that there's a lot of speculation and misunderstanding about the coming Messiah, about himself. And when people recognize he's the Messiah or think that he might be him, the way they often react is to push him into office, to make Jesus king, to get the messianic ball rolling. The Jewish people had a lot of misunderstanding about what Messiah would do when he came. And Jesus wasn't going to ascend the throne the way many thought he should. There was a lot of what we could uh, call messianic baggage in the popular view. And because of that, Jesus wants to keep a lid on his identity, keep it on the, the down low, keep it quiet until he's ready to go public in Jewish regions. But in Gentile regions, there wouldn't have been all this speculation, there wouldn't have been this messianic baggage, which is why he'll say to the man after he delivers him, go and tell, go and preach. So, when telling others what Jesus has done would lead to greater misunderstanding and speculation in Jewish regions, Jesus puts a lid on it. But when telling others wouldn't lead to that, when it would actually bring the right kind of press, like in this Gentile region, Jesus encourages it, as we'll see this morning. I wish you were here, because I'd want to say to you, does that make sense? And see some of your faces, yes, no, gauge my, my more comments if needed, but we can't do that, we'll trust that this makes sense, I hope it does. By the way, this is the first time Jesus goes to Gentiles in his ministry. Gentiles have come to him before. But here, Jesus gives the disciples, we could say, a preview of what's coming later on in their ministry when he'll call them to make disciples of all nations. And later, these disciples would share his heart for the nations. But right now, in Luke 8, on the seashore, imagine what must have been going through their minds. The 12 of them, his disciples, they're all Jewish, They'd grown up believing that Gentiles are unclean, uncircumcised dogs. Lots of prejudice. They're not thrilled about going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in the first place. They know that's Gentile land. After almost drowning on the way, they finally get ready to dock their boat. And when they do, the first one who greets them is naked, violent, and demon-possessed. And I wonder if Jesus... Uh, right before they, they dock their boat, turns and and looks at the disciples and says, "Aren't you glad you followed me?" Well, that's the setting, and this uh, background sets the stage for uh, the next part in our outline, which is the situation. As I was preparing, uh, those famous words, uh, "Houston, we have a problem," kept running through my mind when I got to this part. Here we could say, "Jesus, we have a situation." We can imagine that after their ordeal at sea, the disciples might have been looking forward to some downtime, a little rest. That does not happen, does it? The action starts from the minute they land. Verse 27, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Now, this man was not an ideal candidate to head up the garrison welcoming committee but it's exactly who they got. This is a man who very clearly needed saving. He's living outside the city because of his condition. He has no clothes, no house, right? He lives among the tombs. He's dangerous, says he's bound by chains. Verse 29 says he's kept under guard. Imagine being one of the town folk and your job is watching the demon-possessed man. No matter what jobs you and I have had that we've hated, it could not have been as bad as that job. As terrible as this would have been for everyone in this man's community. I mean, after all, he's crazy. The demon would seize him. He'd break loose from his chains. He'd run off into the desert. Everyone's afraid of him. As terrible as it was for everyone else, can you imagine how horrible it was for the man who's demon-possessed, to be cut off from the ones that you love, to have to make your home among the dead in the tombs. If you've ever been shunned by your family or shut off from a group you were once part of, you might have a sense of what this man experienced. It's certainly not the same thing, but the social isolation we feel today after a month However hard that is, this man lives by himself and is feared by his community. It's no picnic for his family either. What if this man was your dad or your son or your brother? He's now known as the town freak. He's crazy, naked, demonic, lives out there. What a shameful thing to live with. Satan has wrecked this man's life. He's alone. No doubt he's cold. He's hungry. He can't be a normal part of his family or community because of the demons that are tormenting him and endangering others. This is his life with no hope in sight until Jesus comes across the sea to save him picture the scene. Jesus gets out of the boat. The demoniac meets him. Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man. The man falls down at the feet of Jesus and shouts, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. And Jesus says, what is your name? What is your name? Perhaps his parents had named him Jacob or Samuel but he's so overtaken by this demon, these demons. He's so possessed by the wicked presence in his life that his own person and name was absorbed by by the evil presence within him. He had lost his name. So much so that when Jesus asks him, what is your name? The demon answers. The man says, legion. That word legion comes from a Latin word for a military unit. A Roman legion would typically have five or 6,000 soldiers in it. And the point here, I don't believe, is the number of demons, but that this man is overrun by demons. They own him. But just as easily as Jesus could exercise one demon, here he casts out a whole army of them. Jesus takes Satan's power very seriously, and we ought to as well. But what's really encouraging for us and really life changing for that man is that Jesus has the power to save him, to deliver him, to stand against all the forces of hell that the devil can, can rally, to keep that man in chains. The demons beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss. You see that in verse 31. The abyss, that was a place of the dead in the Old Testament, so not a vacation destination. Jesus doesn't send them there, but instead allows these unclean spirits to enter a nearby herd of pigs. They leave the man, verse 33 says, they enter the pigs. Mark's gospel tells us there were 2,000 of these dirty little buggers, and the pigs, not surprisingly, when a demon comes into your life, they go crazy, they rush down the bank into the water, and they drown. It was a short stay at Chateau de Swine. This passage doesn't tell us a lot about demons other than Jesus is more powerful than even a whole legion of them. We're not told, for instance, how animals can be demon-possessed, why Jesus would allow them to enter the pigs or why they'd even want to, why Jesus doesn't send them into the abyss, what happened to the demons after the pigs drowned, where did they go from there? We don't have answers to any of those questions. And what that tells us, I think, is that there are a lot more important things to see. Like the victory of Jesus over the power of the devil. A victory which had radically changed this man's life. This situation, as you might expect, elicits a response, actually three responses. Listen for them as we read verses 34 to 39. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear." So he, that's Jesus, got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The three responses Luke records are from the herdsmen, the people from the region, and then from the man himself, the one formerly known as Legion. The first response, verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. You know, this this was not your everyday thing for these guys, not a normal occurrence for your average pig farmer in the garrisons. This kind of freak happening deserved to be gossiped about. So they fled and told it far and wide in the city and in the country. Maybe they were just so in awe that this thing happened. You know how sometimes you experience something and you're like, I just have to tell someone. Maybe that was part of it. Also it's possible they didn't want to be held responsible for the loss of the livestock they were watching. The pig profits that had literally gone down the drain and so they needed others to confirm their story so they'd be off the hook. Probably a bit of both motivated their uh, evangelism that day. That's the first response. The second response comes from the people of the region. In verse 37, we see they asked Jesus to depart from their region. We might say, why? For they were seized with great fear. Now, it's not hard to imagine why people might be afraid in a situation like this. They saw the man that Formerly was demon possessed, the one they did everything they could to avoid sitting before Jesus, fully clothed in his right mind. Perhaps they saw the pig bodies still floating in the water. What sort of power could have done all this? Oftentimes we fear what we don't know. We have a restored man, that's good, but a lot of dead pigs. What happened over there? Is this prophet or magician or whatever he is, is he someone we want sticking around? Will he treat us well? Will he cost us more money? How will he and his associates uh, affect our lives if they stay here? They recognized the mystery and power of what had taken place. That, That was undeniable. But they couldn't make a place for it or accommodate it to their lives. And so they asked Jesus to leave. They let their fear and perhaps for some of them their greed keep them from rejoicing in what God had done. They couldn't see how great Jesus was, but there was one who did. Our third response is from the man formerly known as Legion. The man who was just delivered begs to go with Jesus, but instead becomes a missionary to his own people. And isn't it ironic that all the sane people in our story don't see how great Jesus is. And the one who does was just a few minutes ago possessed by thousands of demons. The obvious demonic power at work here is the exorcism that just took place. That, that, the demonic power in that man that Jesus cast out. But there's another demonic power at work in this scene, a subtle embedded demonic power. It's the rejection of Jesus by the people. They don't want to go with Jesus. They just want Jesus to go. But not this man. This man loves Jesus for what he's done for him. He begs to join the band of followers, but Jesus had a different plan for him. Look at verse 39. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. This man became a missionary to his own town. No one could deny the change, the powerful transformation that had taken place in his life. He could honestly say, like sometimes you hear, you know, I've had a lot of demons in my life. He really did. And they all knew it. What a great testimony he had. His before and after pictures are so dramatic. Before his encounter with Jesus, he had a lot of demons. After his encounter with Jesus, they're all gone. Before his encounter with Jesus, he's naked, but after he's clothed. Do you ever wonder where did he get his clothing? I I just imagine Jesus taking off his outer robe and wrapping it around the man. Before his encounter with Jesus, he lived among the tombs. But after, he can finally go home. Just a moment ago, he's naked. He's writhing. He's screaming at Jesus. He's out of his mind. But now he's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the, the posture of a disciple. He's clothed. He's in his right mind. Jesus had brought wholeness to this man's life. Jesus brings the whole gospel to the whole Man, when Jesus saves you, he saves all of you. He meets all your needs. This man's exile is over. He's going home, and he's got a mission to carry out now. And notice that Jesus doesn't tell him to keep silent like he does in in Mark 7, 8, and 9. No, just the opposite. Jesus is Lord. Go and tell it. Go and tell how mighty the work of God is on your behalf. Share it everywhere. Look at verse 39 again. Jesus says, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. You see what Luke's doing there? He's showing that there's a connection between the work of Jesus and the work of God. In the storm at sea, Jesus exercises power over nature just like God, just like Yahweh does. The parting of the Red Sea being the chief example. And here Jesus tells the man, go tell everyone how much God has done for you. And what does he do? He leaves and he tells everyone how much Jesus has done for him. God and Jesus, they're not business partners. Jesus isn't just some miracle worker or traveling healer. No. He's the unique son of the father. There's a difficult to understand yet undeniably true connection between Jesus and God. Scholar N.T. Wright has this to add. He says, Luke is not offering us, or not yet, any formula or carefully worked out doctrine of how God was in Christ. At the moment, it is simply something people discover in their experience. What Jesus does, God does, or to put it the other way around, If you want to tell people what God has done, then tell them what Jesus has done. And that's exactly what this man was doing, this missionary who was once a demoniac. Well, this man, the whole region, the disciples, they had encountered the power of God in the ministry of Jesus on this day. And it got a response, didn't it? A mixed response, but a response And that reminds us that you can't witness the power of God and go away neutral. You know, sometimes we wonder, I I wonder how I would have responded if I was there and witnessed this. And you know, the truth is, we can't really answer that question because we weren't there. But there is a question we can answer. It's the same question Jesus asked the demon-possessed man What is your name? I don't mean Tim or Andrew or whatever your parents named you. What I mean is what is your primary identity? What's most true about you? Who's in possession of you? Who do you belong to? What is your name? The man in our story is no longer named Legion. He's a child of God. He's a son. That's his name now. What is your name? Have you experienced the name-changing power of Jesus Christ? Through faith in the Son of God, are you a child of God today? Has your life been restored? Are you clothed today in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a great worship song that we used to sing in a former church and it it sounds like it was written for this very story. It's called, I Will Change Your Name. And I won't sing it for you but I would encourage you to to look it up on YouTube and, and sing along. It says, I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've turned from your self and your sin and you've put your faith in him, you trust in his record not your own, then your name has been changed. Even when you don't feel like it, it has, you don't feel like you're new, your name's been changed. Your daughter, your son, your child of God. Rest in that. But if you don't know Jesus as Lord and Savior, then let me just tell you, you can have your name changed today. And you don't have to fill out any forms or stand in any lines It's immediate when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your name will be changed. Are you wounded? Come to Jesus and be healed. Are you outcast? Come to Jesus and find that you're welcomed home. Are you lonely? Come to Jesus and find the best friend you'll ever have. Are you afraid? Join the club. But if you come to Jesus, you will experience a love that casts out fear. Jesus saves. Are you ready to be found? Let's pray together. Lord, what can we say? You are a mighty God and you have done great things for your world, and specifically for your people. God, you bring us close. You bring us near. You see us who are uh, lost and afraid and lonely and naked and outcast, and you provide a way back home to cover our sin and shame, to give us to others, to, to bring us near to you in friendship you're a good, good father. I pray that many would find you, Lord, would find you as such today. That when people ask them, what is your name? The first thing that crosses their mind would be son, daughter, child of God. We thank you for all you've done and for all you will continue to do. You are a good God and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.